uh, 1 through 11, 17 through 20, and 32 through 50 on page 6 and 7. I think I get the price for the longest passage. So hopefully I won't lose my spot. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Thamen between Sukkah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I def defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd loaded up, sorry, left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this, this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed in his own tunic, sorry, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. 
he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with the sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you with the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. You knew how many times my son, Jeremiah, made me reenact this scene with him this past week. Uh, I was Goliath, of course, crashing to the ground. You, you would be glad I'm not making you reenact it with me, because I'm all practiced up and ready to go if you want to do it afterwards. Hey, before we move on, um, I forgot to do one thing, and that was to reintroduce, well, no, introduce, to congratulate the Yancey family on their new baby, and to introduce to you, well, I'll let you do it. Yancey, you want to do it? All right, Pastor Yancey, won't you stand up? Crystal, you want to say hello too? <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Sky Estelle. How's she doing? How you doing? <laughs> Got to keep praying for you. All right. It's a joy, uh, a great joy to see your family grow and to do life together with you as a family, a church family. All right. We are, last week we started our new series in the life of David, the great king of the Old Testament, and we're moving into 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let me say a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Jesus, even as we look at baby Sky, and we thank you for her life and the way that you have protected her. Yeah, that's right. Protected her and loved her even in these early days. We look to you now as the author of life, physical life and spiritual life. And we ask that you would breathe life through your word into our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would make your word active uh, penetrating, life-changing for us, and most of all, help us to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Paula and I turned on the original Star Wars trilogy. Anyone else see Star Wars recently? Well, as we were watching, I was noticing just how much the plot was crafted as a story about the underdog. The underdog. 
the valiant but under-resourced rebel alliance facing the powerful evil galactic empire, uh, the whiny man-child named Luke Skywalker early on seeking to overcome the great dark lord Darth Vader. It's what makes the story exciting, in part. We love to root for the underdog. You know, the, the weaker person, the weaker team that's expected to lose, but somehow, somehow, maybe, can overcome the odds. And so we root for and we pull for the unlikely winner in Rudy and in Rocky, in Home Alone, remember that one, and in Slumdog Millionaire. Or we pull for the underdog in real-life stories, like the one told in Hidden Figures. You know, the story about a team of female African-American mathematicians who helped launch NASA's first successful space mission. And come on, in next week's Super Bowl, even, nobody's rooting for Tom Brady and the Patriots, right? <laughs> right? Except for maybe Pat. Where you at, right? There you are, right? Why? Because we love to root for the underdog. Which is one reason why this story of David and Goliath is so beloved. It's one of the best known stories in the entire Bible. Yeah, it, it's a classic underdog story. David, against all odds, defeats the terrible giant Goliath. But is there more to the story than that? Because it's if it's just about the glory of underdogs, well, we can turn to the TV for that. Is there more to the story than that? I think so. What's the story of David and Goliath all about? Well, first of all, this is a story about cowards. The Philistines were one of Israel's biggest enemies. Here they were, we're told in verse 3, with a battle line drawn. The Philistines occupying one hill and the armies of Israel occupying another hill with the valley of Elah in there between them. The Philistines, of course, had a secret weapon named Goliath. Except, of course, there was nothing secret about him. You couldn't miss him. You may not know that the Bible actually never calls him a giant, but it does tell us in verse 4 that he's very tall. Uh, traditionally, he's described as being nine and a half feet tall, but many scholars believe that he might have been six and a half feet tall, which might not be very impressive today, but back then when people were a lot shorter, uh, certainly would have made him tower over the average person, indeed the average soldier in Israel's army. He would have been a giant by comparison. But it wasn't just his height, it was his strength. And the author describes his armor in great detail. I don't know if you noticed that, every piece from head to toe, just to show how intimidating it all was. His bronze armor itself weighed 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. I don't know what modern armor weighs, Andrew, we'll talk later, but that's heavy. And the iron point of his spear, just the iron point of the spear alone, weighed 15 pounds. But see, it wasn't just his height, it wasn't just his strength, it was also his mouth. 
He liked to talk a lot. Every day he would come out and taunt the Israelites, threatening them. And you put all this together, who wouldn't be scared? There wasn't a single person in Israel who wasn't scared. In verse 11, it's crystal clear. King Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And that word translated dismayed in the ancient language, it's actually a quite intense word. It means broken down by fear. It actually has a a sense of being prostrate, laid low to the ground, on your face, you're so afraid course in verse 32 as well David said to Saul let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine all of Israel was afraid but you know one person in particular was afraid and that was Saul king of Israel who was many times throughout the book of 1 Samuel described as being a full head taller than the average Israelite that's why he was chosen to be king he, he looked like a warrior. He was impressive. He was big and strong, and yet here he is hiding out with the supplies boy in the back. Saul was called to defend his people. He was called to lead them. He was called to courage, and yet he showed nothing but cowardice. Listen, we also have these so-called giants in our lives that make us fearful, don't we? Maybe for you, it's that sinful habit that's been defeating you lately. Or it might be that broken relationship that just doesn't seem to be fixing itself. You know how relationships are supposed to just fix themselves. Or maybe it's that stack of unpaid bills that you're almost trying to ignore, but it only seems to be growing. Or maybe it's the scary diagnosis that the doctor just delivered. And doesn't it sometimes feel that these things come out every morning with fresh energy to taunt you even? At least in the quiet of your heart. Threatening you. Drumming up fear within you. And the problem, of course, in life isn't just fear itself. The problem, as this passage reminds us, is also cowardice which is an immoral fear that keeps you from doing what you ought to do. In Saul's case, keeping him from protecting the vulnerable. Cowardice that shrinks our hearts and keeps us from serving others, loving others, protecting others. Saul was a coward. Man, I am too. Are you? The way that I'm afraid so often, too often, to be honest about my sins and shortcomings, even with close friends. The way that I'm afraid to tell the truth and therefore re-hurting those that I've hurt now with my silence. The way that I'm afraid to tell people things they don't want to hear, even if I know they're destroying themselves because I love being loved more than I love them. Truth be told. The way that I'm afraid to admit my limitations, which at times has harmed the church, you. What's making you fearful today? What's making you into a coward? 
This story invites us to ponder this because this is a story about cowards. But it's also, secondly, a story about a champion. A champion. Goliath is introduced in verse 4 as what? As a champion. Uh, Which doesn't mean that he had a lot of trophies at home. It means something else. Notice it also in the last sentence of the story we're told, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. What's a hero? What's a champion? A champion was an almost technical term in the ancient world for the best warrior that you would put forward to represent your army. To make sense of this, you have to recall what Goliath said to the army each day, what he said to Israel in the second half of verse 8. What did he say? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will be your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then again in verse 10, he says, Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the Armies of Israel, give me a man and let us fight each other. This is an example of single combat, also called representative combat, which was the Philistine way of settling a battle between two armies. You might remember seeing an example of this in Homer's Iliad, the movie version at least, when Achilles and Hector, played by Eric Bana and Brad Pitt, squared off against each other as representatives of these opposing parties. The Hebrew expression behind champion actually is literally man of the in-between because this person would go in between the lines and serve as a representative of an army. If he wins, the whole army wins. If he loses, the whole army behind him loses. David would serve as Israel's champion. David would defeat Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And so when David won with that mighty sling, when Goliath was defeated, the whole Philistine army was defeated. When David won, all of Israel won. But what kind of champion was David? You notice, you know this. He was portrayed as a weak warrior, the likely loser in this confrontation. I mean, every part of the story rehearses different things that lead us to believe there's not a chance, not a chance at all. First of all, David's not even old enough to serve in the army. In verse 33, Saul says to him, you are not able to go out against the Philistines and fight him. You're only a young man. Now, he's probably a fully bearded, older young man, maybe in his late teens. Not the scrawny 10-year-old that the storybooks like to portray him as. Nevertheless, he was young. And in verse 38 and 39, in that scene, when Saul offers David his tunic and his armor, David doesn't reject it because it's too big for a little boy that hasn't really hit puberty yet and can't really fit into a man's armor. That's not the point there. He tells us, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. 
man, you don't go into a big game wearing someone else's sneakers, do you? You wear your own. The main point is David didn't have big game speakers, sneakers. He didn't have armor because he wasn't a soldier. He was a shepherd. He was inexperienced at combat. There's no way that he should be expected to beat this experienced warrior whom we're told has been fighting since he was a youth. And David's only entrance into the picture at all is owing to his dad telling him in verse 17 to deliver an ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and, to, and ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. I mean, why is David there? He's sent in to bring the granola bars and the Gatorade to the real soldiers, right? He's the water boy in this scene. Verse 42 tells us that Goliath, finally upon seeing David, sized him up and despised him, you see, because Goliath is insulted that such pitiful competition would be sent before him. David won in weakness. This is the sort of champion that David was. And yet he was victorious against all odds by the power of God's spirit, able to overcome and to find victory, not only on behalf of himself, but all who stood behind him. And at this point, the lesson usually ends, doesn't it? Be brave like David. Overcome your fears. Slay your giants. God will help you. But don't you know the main point of the story is not what God will do for you against your giants, but rather what God has already done in David for the greatest of all great giants. The second David, the true David, the ultimate David, Jesus who would come and serve as our champion. Who, who would be one who would assume human flesh and be born as a child and grow up as a true man, walking through life's trials and temptations, just like you and me, so that he could be our real representative. That when the time would come and he would step forward to the cross, when he would step into the courtroom of heaven, serving our sentence, that he might be our true representative. So that when the wrath of God would be poured upon him for my sin, my failures, my cowardice, that Jesus' death would count as mine and justice would be satisfied. And that when Jesus will rise again, this champion, victorious over sin and death, that his life would count as mine. That Jesus would win a victory on the cross that would serve as my victory, as your victory, if you would put your trust in him, if you would elect him as your representative by faith. That he will be the man in between you and God. He'll be the man in between you and the broken world and the evils around and the evils within. 
Do you know Jesus as your champion? The greater David, who won, but in weakness and vulnerability. Jesus defeated the greatest giant there is. The giant of sin. The giant of death. And the giant of fear that plagues every heart because of the curse of sin and death. But how did he do it? By getting crucified. He won by losing. Like it said in verse 50, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Jesus triumphed over sin, evil, and death with a Roman cross. This is your David, the one given to you. Do you know him as such? Victorious, as we're told in Colossians 2, how Christ himself canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Apostle Paul later again in 1 Corinthians 15 says, not only that our sins have been forgiven, but death itself has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Jesus gives you his victory. Does not ask you to go out and fight it for yourself and win doesn't give you biscuits and granola bars and Gatorade for you to fight your giant yourself and win. He has slain the giant for you. He gives you the victory and calls you to share in the spoils of the wondrous riches of the grace and the kindness of God. This is a story about a champion given for you. And it's then and only then that we begin to overcome our many, many fears. To know that our greatest fear has already been defeated. That our greatest concerns, our greatest anxieties have already been addressed by the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. On two counts. One, because God has proven that he cares. And he started with the biggest thing first. How much more will he not also care for the little things in life? But not only so, by dying and by rising again, he is made in a direct assault right between the eyes upon the enemy of death and the enemy of sin. There's still much to be afraid of, but do you know and believe that God has begun the dismantling of all evils? God has already set into motion the death of death itself. Jesus has triumphed on the cross over the power of sin. He's forgiven you if you find yourself in him. And one day, someday, he will finally rid your life, not just of the penalty of sin, but finally and fully the very presence of sin when you're raised in glory together with him. This is a story about embracing this champion, but it is a story about embracing him with faith. It's a story of faith. 
because the champion David was a weak champion, an unlikely champion, but the power that he had was the power of his faith. His victory was supernatural. It was not because a sling was a more superior form of weaponry. It wasn't because David was a faster runner. All the ways in which this passage tells this story reminds us again that there's no victory apart from God's intervention. Do you believe that about your greatest challenges today? In verse 45, David says to the Philistine, You can come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I mean, did you hear that? Listen, David doesn't say, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you with a sling and superior agility and lateral movement and better fast-twitch muscles. No. He points not to his guts, not to his superior aim. He points to nothing about himself. As one commentator has helpfully said, in this circumstance, David's exposure to danger permitted God's honor to be more clearly acknowledged than if David had more obviously been a match for the Philistine. God is, David is, setting all of our sights upon God, whom alone is responsible for this victory. And why did David, why did God do it this way? David is clear in verse 46, so the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. In verse 47, so that all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord. This is a call to radical trust. Listen, when we are in a bind and when we are most confronted by giant fears, we really, really believe that the way that we will overcome our fears is by superior strength, is by bucking up and bearing down, or by riding and out. Goliath was, as one commentator wrote, confident in the superiority of his equipment as well as his great natural strength, and man, doesn't that describe us too? The way you turn to your smarts to get yourself out of a bind. The way you turn to your financial resources to pay your way out of your fears. The way we turn to our natural endurance and abilities rather than turning to the only one who can truly give you victory, trust in the Lord. That battle in your life belongs to the Lord. But faith isn't just saying a prayer it's a complete outlook in life. It's the ability to see God, not where he's not, but where he always is. Faith is seeing God in everything and knowing that God is everywhere. This is how David begins to overcome his fear before every, the thing that everyone else in the whole valley is trembling and quaking and bowing. It's why this story that David tells about the bear and the lion that he defeated back in the shepherd's fields was so important. It sounds sort of kooky, like David saying, hey, you know, I kind of, you know, 
threw some rocks at some bears and at work so I can kill this giant. What he's actually showing is how he believes that God is immersed in every detail of his life. That God is present with him for every trial, every step of the way. Not just in battle, but in the mundane details of life. Not just in the biggest sources of fears, but even in the little giants, the bear giants and the lion giants. He sees God everywhere. He believes God is with him. Eugene Peterson is so helpful here when he comments as such. We find ourselves faced with acquiring a God-dominated imagination and rejecting a Goliath-dominated imagination. Because when you're afraid, all you can see and feel is Goliath. The same debased imagination that treated Goliath as important treated David as insignificant. The only person fully in touch with reality that day was David. Reality is made up mostly of what we can't see, namely God. Which is precisely what David saw. Which is why he looked at the giant Goliath, the giant Goliath. And he said, this is going to be no sweat at all. This is a story of faith. Faith that frees us from fear. Faith that frees us from cowardice and self-protective terror. Faith that brings us into a deep, rich encounter with the love of God in Christ, our champion, in a way that casts out all terror, that there's finally room in our hearts for sacrificial love, which just might have something to do with these newly imposed government restrictions on the entrance of refugees from the Middle East, right? See, in places like Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy, Matthew 25, you know, the Bible unquestionably calls individuals and Christians and Christian churches to care for refugees. We should move toward, not away from, opportunities to care for vulnerable, displaced peoples. That should be a Christian's first instinct. Not only as a matter of compassion, but as a matter of justice. What suffering people who bear the image of God are owed. At the same time, the very clear Christian call to care for refugees doesn't always make it crystal clear how or to what degree this ought to manifest itself in national immigration and refugee policy, right? Public policy is a matter of great moral and legal complexity. And so it's also true that Christian compassion for refugees must not flippantly dismiss real national security concerns and concerns about terrorism. Which brings us to how I think this passage best speaks into this refugee situation. Not solving policy questions for us, but rather giving us perspective as such. 
because quietly lying at the center of public debate around these refugees is fear. Real fears, sometimes reasonable fears, sometimes misinformed fears, nevertheless fear, and the great temptation to succumb to the prioritization of self-preservation. So how are you going to resist that temptation? The temptation to succumb to fear and self-preserving priorities. You got a champion who's already slain a giant, do you? In an interview with Christianity Today last week, the president of World's, World Relief's uh, Scott Arbeiter, president there, he raises some important questions. This is what he writes. The question for the American Christian is, will we speak out on behalf of those who are running from the very terror that we are rightly trying to put an end to? People who are running from Mosul and Aleppo and a thousand other places on fire, will we be willing to accept giving up a one in three billion chance of our safety in order to make room for them? Or will we say, I am not willing to give up even the smallest fraction of my safety to welcome them? We don't need to agree, all of us, on the right policy solutions for this refugee crisis, but we can agree on this, that to love refugees would mean giving up some of your safety to make room for them. But isn't this simply the nature of gospel love? Because to love is to make oneself vulnerable for the sake of the vulnerable. Which is exactly what Jesus did in being born as a baby and dying on a cross as a man. You see, we're talking about fear. And the promise of this passage is not that the greatest benefit is simply just freedom for fear, freedom from fear as an end in and of itself. But it's rather to be like David, to serve the vulnerable and to care for those around you. To not give in to the ethic of Saul and to cower. It's freedom from fear for freedom to love. And not to selfishly protect your own self-interest, but rather to sacrificially love and serve others. As C.S. Lewis put it, to love at all is to make yourself vulnerable. If you love at all, you might get hurt. Sometimes you might even die in the call to love. But what if you have a champion who's already slain the giant of sin and evil and death? What if there was one who was eternally invincible, who made himself vulnerable to rescue you and me in our vulnerability? What if there was one who died and defeated the power of death so that you don't have to live in fear of death anymore? 
so that you can take radical risks to love, even the risk of being called foolish for loving so? What if there was one who will one day crush evil underneath his feet, even the evil of terrorism, and in fact, who even now promises to reign over the principalities and powers of terror? What if we believed, what if we received such a champion in Jesus Christ? Then would we be more willing to dare to love? Then would we receive the refugee? Then would we love by telling the truth to our neighbor or to our roommate? Then would we love by moving into parts of the neighborhood that maybe we once thought were a little bit dicey, but now we know how to love neighbor as we love ourselves. And then maybe we find power to care for one another sacrificially. Yea, even to the point of death. Because you know don't you know, dear friends, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And Jesus triumphed over sin, evil, and death to free you to love both God and neighbor with a Roman cross. Is he your champion? Is he your champion? Let's pray. Jesus, man, whatever we need to receive today, open wide our hearts to receive from you and to love you and to know you as the one who gives us victory and help us to love like you because we know we've been loved by you. Jesus, our greater David, we look to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.